Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. up this series on how is your doing and uh, thinking a little bit this morning about uh, our tendency to get uh, trapped in being procedure oriented instead of goal oriented and if you've been around very long you know I like this story so maybe you've heard it before but it's uh, it's worth retelling it was a championship game and uh, things weren't going very well for the home team the starting quarterback had been injured and the second string quarterback had been injured and they were down to the third-string quarterback. Third-string quarterback really wasn't a quarterback at all, never really played before. He was just a guy designated to go in in case something catastrophic happened to the first two quarterbacks. So the coach pulled him aside and said, listen, I don't want you to worry. There's no pressure on you at all. I really have very little expectation of what you're going to be able to accomplish out there. <laughs> so here's the deal. It's almost halftime. So what I want you to do is just want you to stay focused. You don't need to think much. This is what you need to do. You're just going to hand the ball off. We're going to run it up the middle on the first play. On the second play, we're going to run up the middle. On the third play, we're going to run up the middle. Fourth play, I want you to kick. And then we're going to get into halftime. We're going to see if we can get somebody healthy. And we'll make a plan in the second half. So the kid runs out onto the field. And on the first play, he turns and hands it to the halfback who runs for 20 yards. And on the second play, he hands it to the fullback who breaks it for another 10. On the third play, he keeps it himself, runs up the middle to the opponent's 10-yard line. On the fourth play, he kicks. <laughs> and I think when we spend weeks talking about practices, it's easy for us to start to think that the whole point is about the procedures of the practices, and we're going to hone our practices. And so if I were to say to you, the practices are not the goal, they're just a procedure, uh, what is the goal? What is the goal? After eight weeks of talking about practices, if I just said to you, why practices? What are we trying to get to? What is the point of all of this? Pretty simply, the point is to be drawn into relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't get oriented to the practices. We, we use practices to bring us to a place of relationship with God and also relationship with others. And so this entire focus has been how do we refine practices in such a way that they lead us into a healthy, loving relationship with God and a healthy, loving relationship with others. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, that's what we're talking about. We've talked about that in a couple of perspectives. By the way, is everybody doing okay this morning? I know it rained this weekend, and it's, it's astonishing to me what the power of rain is in Southern California. Just a little bit of precipitation from the sky, and we become the most mellow people I mean, we were already pretty mellow people here in Southern California, but a little bit of precipitation, and then suddenly we're like, yeah, I don't... <sighs> Maybe it's just me, but uh, it, it, feels like, it feels like you are all having a large nap right now. <laughs> just feeling mellow, and that's okay. If you're comfortable, I'll try to speak softly and not disturb you. If you can just lend me your brains, maybe, a piece of your brain, maybe we'll do some of that osmosis learning while we're in here. So the process, 
And what's fascinating to me about this thing is what we've done is we've taken this understanding that Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, simply said, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. That out of that grows all of our understanding about how this works, about what we're for, about what the goal is. And then we've sort of laid over beside that some things that are happening in modern psychology. And we've tried to say, isn't this interesting? (laughs) Isn't it interesting that modern psychology says there are a couple of metacognitive values, ways of thinking about your thinking, higher thinking that reorders your thinking. And they have identified those as mindfulness and empathy. How fascinating. (laughs) That I need to step back and practice a mindfulness that allows me to think about my thinking. That allows me to see myself in some objectivity where I'm not fully subjective to my emotions and feelings and circumstances. I don't know, just me. But I get to emerge from that subjectivity into a place of mindfulness, if you like that image. Or I get to hover at 10,000 feet and get a bird's eye view of what's going on. I get to sort think. I get to go, nope, those are not good ways of thinking. I'm going to need to think differently about that. I'm going to need to pattern differently. And the second being empathy. I need to put myself in the place of others. If I'm going to become healthy psychologically, inwardly, I need to practice these two metacognitive virtues. I need to have mindfulness and I need to practice empathy. Anybody else seeing the parallels here? So that when Jesus looks at the crowd and says, so I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that not the greatest emergence from subjectivity ever in the history of the world? Is that not the greatest hope of mindfulness ever? (laughs) And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that not the very definition of empathy? So we've talked about that. And then we've talked about the pro-social virtues. We've talked about what it means for us to practice things that are good for people around us. Things like trust and compassion and and, and gratitude and forgiveness, these things matter. They they allow us to engage. We are attachable when we are practicing. I always, you know, it's interesting people say, I just wish more people liked me or loved me. I don't know what's wrong with people that they don't love me more. Sometimes in order to be loved more, you have to be more lovable. Amen? So, so we engage in this process by which we, we understand that practicing pro-social, pro-social virtues makes us more lovable, connectable, which is all part of learning to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're told now that if, if this stuff comes together... If this stuff comes together in us, if we get integrated in that way, then something comes out the other end, that there's actually a product that's produced from this behavior, from this mindfulness and empathy, from these pro-social behaviors. We become people who provide generative care for others. Isn't that a great word? Isn't that a great word? That we actually engage in a way where we become whole in our inner world so that we are then able to share that wholeness with the people around us. We're able to to love others. The whole image of Scripture is built around this idea that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that, that in fact God was very busy pursuing His children, pursuing His creation. And the goal of that pursuit was to create in them reconciliation, create in them wholeness, 
If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. See, the scriptural story is that God is pursuing people who are broken by sin. Now, I don't know if you know this, but theologians don't all agree on the definition of sin. By the way, we're breaking a lot of ground here because a lot of pastors now don't want to talk about sin in church. It's not in style. Which sort of seems to me a misunderstanding of the whole concept of sin. You know, sin is not a source of shame or guilt or, you know, a lack of self-worth. It's an admission that I don't work right. It's an admission that says there are things in my life that separate me from connection with God. And sometimes those things are behaviors. Those things are things I do that are against the rules. Yes. But often it's something deeper than that. It's something that my mind tells me about my worth. It's an attitude I carry around. It's something that happened to me because somebody else did something that causes me to feel shame or regret or causes my emotions not to work quite right, that, that creates dysfunction inside me as a human being. The great story of Scripture is not about a legalistic God it's about a God who loves his creation and longs to set things in order in a way that they are becoming whole and healed and, and they are being created in a way that they are reconciled, reconciled, made right. The whole, the whole story arrives at this moment of Jesus sacrificing his life in order to bring reconciliation to the world. That this moment of Jesus on the cross is the thing that ultimately says you and I can be healed mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So profound is this moment that the scripture says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Listen, that is such a hopeful expression. That's such a magnificent gospel that says God loves you and me like that to pour himself out in a way to make us whole. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that. When I, when I hear that expression, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There's not a bit of that sentence that I don't love. I desire deeply to be that new creation. I desire deeply that some old things are gone. <laughs> Amen? And some new things have come. And we don't really, in, in our process, we don't think, well, if you practice all the practices well enough, then, then this can happen. No, no. That's not what we're saying. Not at all. What we're saying, in fact, is that this is a free gift of God. That we just say, God, help me. And he says, okay. Okay. But then this salvation doesn't just get in us. This new creation doesn't just get in us. It also gets out of us. God was busy through Christ reconciling us to God and giving us the ministry of reconciliation. So, so that reconciliation comes to us. He pours it into us. And then we pour it into the people around us. And the practices are simply a way by which we receive day after day, week after week, moment by moment, this infilling grace of God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I need it, God. I need to be renewed. I need to be... I forgot... Our next series is called Tune In, and, and the Tune In series is really about this. There's a lot of messages coming at you. Which ones are you listening to?
Because I don't know about you, but the messages that I get on a daily basis are not messages of acceptance and grace and forgiveness and redemption and the hope of new life and restoration. That is not the message I'm getting. I'm getting a very different message. The practices bring me into space to hear this message. God loves me. He loves me. He keeps picking me up and dusting me off. He never is done with me. He's never done. He never goes, that's it. That's it. I gave you five more chances and you used them up. I've had it up to here with you. <laughs> and we laugh, but how many of us feel that way? Emotionally, we feel like God has had it up to here. It's our, the next move is ours. We're going to have to go find God and say, well, please, God, give me one more chance. <laughs> See, the practices pull us into space where we understand, no, no. No, this is the loving God of the universe, and you are his child, and he never, ever, 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 ever gives up on you or leaves you or forsakes you. And even when you are faithless, still he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And we rest in this. We rest in this powerful truth. And we let it get in us, and then we let it get out of us. And so the practice has just become this very simple place in which we understand and enjoy this reality. Jesus is asking in Luke chapter 10, a question he's been asking in the other Gospels, but he has a little different answer in Luke chapter 10, a different account. What's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And the person asking the question says, and who is my neighbor? So you understand what we're doing here? We have a gentleman who is saying, I want to check all the boxes because I want to be reassured that I'm okay. So what do I need to be doing? How do you sum up the law? There's 618 of them. Can you give me the greatest commandment in the law? Maybe I can start there, and then I can feel better about myself. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's ambiguous. I'm not sure how that's quantifiable. So my follow-up question is, exactly who is my neighbor? If you could give me a list and some names... And I could get busy just loving those people. Then, we could, then I could quantify, check off the list, feel better about myself. Amen? See, see what I'm saying? See, it's easy to get procedure-oriented when Scripture is all about goal-oriented. <laughs> we're still doing that, by the way, in the life of the church, defining who we're supposed to love and who we're not supposed to love. So Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. There was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho... And he fell among thieves, and he was beaten and left for dead. And a priest came by. Don't you, wouldn't you have loved to have seen and heard the expressions going on in the crowd? Maybe they were stunned into silence like you. But, <laughs> I mean, can't you imagine Jesus saying, and this man was laying there, and a priest came by. And all the people would go, oh, yeah. But the priest passed by on the far side. And they all would have gone, oh. But I get it. I mean, he's, he's no doubt on his way to the temple. He's going to be ceremonially unclean. He doesn't know if the guy's dead or alive. He's, yeah, that makes sense. And then a Levite came by. A Levite is of the priestly clan, but he does the, you know, the logistical work of the temple. The priest does the priestly work. The Levites are the, sort of the officials, the administrators of the temple. All priestly in their right. Oh, surely the Levite... <laughs> But he also passes by on the other side. And then a Samaritan came by. You couldn't have said anything more damaging in that setting than that. Because they all would have gone, what? Not a Samaritan in this story. That's, this story just 
got ugly. And the Samaritan saw the person in need, and he knelt down, and he bound up his wounds. And he put him on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he paid the innkeeper. And he said, keep this man here, and keep him fed, and take care of him. And if this isn't enough money, I'll pay whatever the balance is when I come back. And now Jesus looks back at the man, and he says, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And he said, you go and do the same thing. So, so that the vision of the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart and to love others in a very literal way. Not, not sort of in a philosophical way, but literally to find people in need and practice care for them. So that what the science is telling us is that out of this process of mindfulness and empathy and pro-social virtues comes generative care. Care for others. The definition, if you wanted to have a working definition of generative care, is given to us in, this, in these forms. Essentially, generativity is a concern for other people, especially for those younger than us. And we can be generative in many ways, including through parenthood, volunteering, teaching, mentoring, neighborhood and community activism, and our careers. Through generativity, we can care for others and we can contribute to the world and the people we will ultimately leave behind. I don't know about you, but that's... Uh... So generative care has something to do with generational care, something to do with the fact that we are taking care... Don't... Do you ever stop and you think, there's a reason God created the imagery of God the Father and us the creation and the children? Because there is a generative nature to the care. God equipping us and preparing us and leaving us so that what we are doing in His place is continuing on the story. And that, that's you and I. That's who you and I are invited and called to be. What amount of time do you think about your generative care to others? I would guess that for most of us, we spend an enormous amount of our time trying to be okay. Even those of us who are highly oriented to the practices and spirituality, we're really spending a disproportionate amount of our time helping God help us feel better about ourselves and our life and our circumstances. Forgetting that all of this healing that is taking place in our heart, soul, mind, and spirit is preparing us so that we might be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God was busy in Christ reconciling us to God and giving us the ministry of reconciliation. These two things go together. They matter a lot. What amount of time and energy do you give to the generative care of the people around you? Henry Nouwen, in his great book uh, that's called Reaching Out, he talks about the three spiritual movements of life. The second spiritual movement that he highlights is a movement from hostility to hospitality. That you and I, in this great spiritual movement, move from this place where we kind of look at the world and go, ah! Instead, we throw our arms open to practice a hospitality. He defines that hospitality uh, with these words, hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. 
The paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness. Not a fearful emptiness, but a friendly emptiness where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free. Free to sing their own songs. Free to speak their own language. To dance their own dances. Free also to leave and follow their own vocations. Hospitality is not a subtle invitation to adore the lifestyle of the host. But the gift of a chance for the guests to find their own way. I think it's such a powerful thing for us to think about. When I was doing research for this sermon, I came across an article that highlighted seven areas where we need to do generative work. Okay, Seven areas, the type of work we should focus on. Number one, there is a relational kind of work to do in generative care. We work on creating healthy relationships. I think, you know, for a lot of us in our culture, when we, when we think about how do we create healthy relationships, what is it? there's a question about who's supposed to be in charge, who's supposed to start. Generative care answers this question, you. I'm, I'm getting it together. I'm allowing God to transform me so that I might then be prepared to reconcile, to, to bring this care for others. It starts with me. And it starts with me working and thinking about creation, creating relational space. Number two, there is stewardship, stewardship work to do. I think it's so important that we think about this one. It's hard to have generative care, and we can apply this. This is scalable. You know, we could apply this in your home. It's hard to be having great generative care for the generation coming if you're not being a good steward of resource, if you're not using money, time, resource wisely. Stewardship is a piece of generative care. If you want to, you can scale that up to taking care of the planet. You can scale that up to wherever you want to go. It doesn't have to stay small. It actually, you know, generative care is a big concept, it turns out. Number three, there's development work to do. That means that as the leaders, as the people who are looking around for people that we care for, by the way, the Bible makes this much more than just older people helping younger people, but... It means that we, we change. We do development work. We are willing to be different because we understand that times are changing. I came across an article uh, a few years ago uh, that was written about uh, music, modern music in the church. And it was saying uh, what has happened to us, the secularization of the life of the church and the secularization of music in the church. And we're, the, the music that we sing now is not substantive. It's not the great songs that we used to sing, and we should go back to the time when we sang differently because that is a part of the health of the church. The article was written in 1750. <laughs> it was written in the middle of the, uh, when the 18th century reformers were writing what we now consider to be the most sacred hymns, and they were setting them to bar tunes so that people knew the tune and could sing the theology of the church. And, and so church leaders were upset. Listen, it is a part of generative care to be developmental. We're going to change because the times are going to change. It doesn't mean we're going to change everything, but it means we're going to be willing to adapt when adapting is better for those, when the learning methods are changing. And by the way, the learning methods are changing. It's terrifying for an old guy like me. Because I don't know, I'm one of the last pastors that doesn't have a screen right here. You know, where I can circle stuff and point. And it's just because I'm not that coordinated. I, just, I mean, it would be terrible. 
But why do pastors put a screen right here? Because visual learning is so much more true today than it's ever been. That, that when people can see something, so we keep putting things on the screen because it's very important that we are visual. This isn't just modern. It's not just faddish. People are changing. Being a great leader, being a generative care person means we do developmental work. Number four, we also do ethical work. It means that we are teaching values and helping people to relate to each other in moral ways. So this is where the development has limits because we also teach the ethical. There is ethical work to be done. Some things matter. They matter. They are healthy, healthier and better for us. And they're healthier and better for our kids. And they're healthier and better for all the generations coming behind us. And they don't really change over time. And we have a responsibility in generative care to do the ethical work. Number five, we also have a responsibility to do spiritual work. Spiritual work is the place where we help others obtain purpose and joy. Listen, I got to tell you this. We're raising generations behind us who are depressed. And part of why they're depressed is that we have told them they are an accident of nature. But the message of God's word is that you are a creation of God. You are made in your uniqueness. He made you with gifts and abilities that are uniquely yours. And we are not okay without you. We are not okay without your input. We need your artistry. We need your creativity. We need your heart. We need your mind. And we will get along without you, but we will not be as good without you. You have purpose. You have joy. There is a reason that you were born. God created you uniquely and powerfully. And listen, there is no amount of science that can rob you of your worth. And it is up to us that we generatively create this environment with our children to teach them purpose and joy and to celebrate their uniqueness. It matters. It's a part of our responsibility and it's a part of what it means to be a generative leader. Number, number six, we do recreation work. We help people relax and have fun. This one's a little forgotten today, isn't it? And this one's hard. Isn't it shocking how much work it is to have fun? Anybody else gone through that? It's shocking how much work it is to have fun. We have this thing that happens at Christmas. It's called carols and cookies. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand why it works. You understand? Because this is what we do. We open the doors on a Friday night, and people come in this room, and they sing Christmas carols together, and they eat cookies. And then they go home. That's it. That's it. There's not a lot of lights and bells and whistles. It's not, there aren't any magic tricks. It's pretty straightforward. But it's fascinating sometimes that simply creating space to do things that we think sometimes are really old-fashioned, but they're actually just fun and relaxing. And sometimes we have to get over ourselves. I mean, what, what a weird thing that we would just go, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to play Monopoly. Okay, not Monopoly, but we're going to play something. <laughs> How quickly the crowd divides. I love Monopoly. But do we ever think about this generative care to have fun? It's not okay to be busy all the time. It's not okay to all the time have our face in our computer or our TV or something else. We've got to have fun. 
It's part of being a generative leader. And number seven, we do mentoring work. We help others to learn the skills of what it takes to be successful. Listen, uh, it, it matters. You know, there's some things work better. We've, we've learned some things. We're in the development mode. We understand change, but we also understand, listen, you're going to be better off if you do this than if you do this. It's just a good thing for you to know. I, I, I discovered these seven areas of de developmental work on a website, and I just want to add this. I stole it, changed some of it, uh, but uh, you should know this. The website that I found it on was dedicated to fatherhood. It was saying, if you want to be a great father, here are seven areas you better pay attention to your children. Seven places that they need your generative care. They need you to exercise your leadership in these areas. I think they apply to all of us in a broader sense, but I just wanted to at least mention that. Paul, in Romans 15, is giving us his list of generative care. Let me read it to you. It's a fitting sort of tie-in to how this section of the letter opens. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. I see five elements of generative care that I think he's highlighting. Number one, take responsibility for the weak. Those of you who are strong ought to help the weak. It's a pretty simple concept that, that the biblical story is that God has reached out to us in our weakness. Now we're supposed to reach out to others in their weakness. And I just want to ask you this question. How much energy in your journey, in your life, in your relationship goes into reaching to others who are weak? I don't know about you, but weak people annoy me. <laughs> Stay with me for a minute. We generally see weak people as people who are de deserving of our ridicule. Now, I don't mean like weak people that are obviously weak people. I mean weak people like those that are driving in front of you. <laughs> like weak people who block your way when you're trying to walk, who are obtuse, who are unaware, who seem to be out to lunch. How quickly it is that we see people who we don't think are as smart as us or as clever as us. I mean, we do that. We talked about that last week. We instantly judge others. You know, well, I don't know why they don't hold us. What the, ha, freedom isn't free, boys. <laughs> but the scripture says when something clicks in your head and you go, oh, weak. Another thing ought to click in your head. Here's a person that needs me. And I wonder how often we don't make this transition. We identify the weakness in judgment, but we fail to address the weakness in compassion and generative care. If you see somebody weak, we're supposed to help. We're supposed to help. Not only do we take responsibility for the weak, but number two, we practice selflessness. Not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their 
good. There's really not a place in the culture that celebrates selflessness. There's just this place of spirituality that celebrates selflessness. It doesn't mean we don't matter. It just means that we understand that at some point we are to love others as ourselves. God is going to help us and then we're going to help others. We're going to practice a selflessness, which leads us right into the third understanding. It embraces the power of sacrifice. It's just such powerful words. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul writes about it in Philippians. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mind as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped. That the idea is this simple thing, that, that you and I are called to live in a way that costs us something. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that most relationship is built on reciprocity. That, that we look at relationship in this way. I'm going to do this for you, and then I'm going to expect that you're going to do some things for me. And then if you stop doing what I feel you need to be doing, then I will withhold what I am doing because it wouldn't be fair, and I need to teach you. Is there anybody relating to this? You don't have to say amen. <laughs> you don't need to elbow your partner. Because if I withhold my care from you, it will punish you in a way that you will know that you must now begin to give back so that you can reopen the wealth of my care for you. <laughs> Listen, a, a relationship built on reciprocity is a bankrupt relationship. And here's why. Because what I think I'm giving you, you're not getting. And what you think you're giving me, I'm not getting. In fact, as human beings, what happens is if you give me this and you give me this for an extended amount of time, it will become the landscape and I'll no longer notice that. You're, it'll just be an expectation now. No longer is it a gift that you're giving me. Old married people want to say amen? <laughs> and, then, and then if I'm not feeling what you're feeling and I'm not getting what you're giving and I'm not giving and you're not giving what I'm getting and at some point we just dry up and we pull away from each other. Because the way a healthy relationship works is this is going to cost me, but it's sacrificial and it means something. I'm going to be selfless and I'm going to be sacrificial because if I'm not being sacrificial, if it's not costing me something, then I'm not sure I'm really giving. I'm not sure I'm really loving. And we have put such a huge emphasis on being comfortable in our lives and in our journey and our relationship that sacrifice is not something. We want to be wealthy enough to, that, that giving, giving to others doesn't cost us. There is something about relationship and true love that sacrifices. And that's the biblical model. And that's what we're called to. Number four, this biblical generative care integrates into God's purposes. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they might provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other as that of Christ Jesus. That's just incredible. So that the whole mindset of God is to pour selflessly into you and into me and enable us to pour into the lives of others. We receive it in and we pour it out. 
It's recorded for us over in John's Gospel, chapter 7. On the last day, the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living, uh, living water will flow from within them. So, so the imagery is simply this. If you need help, if you need encouragement, if you are thirsty, come to Jesus and he'll pour into you. And then out of you will come rivers of living water. This is the biblical pattern. This is the biblical story. This is God's plan. He pours in and we pour out. He was busy reconciling to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, I don't know where you are in your journey. But maybe you're in that place of saying, I, I need God to pour into me. I feel dry. I feel empty. I feel overwhelmed. I feel used up. That's why we practice the practices. Not to worship the practices, but the practices would bring us into a place where we can receive from God, where the message is coming in, where we're tuned in. You are God's divine creation. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's never fed up. He's never done. He doesn't have it up to here with you. He has open arms. He welcomes you in. He wants to pick you up, clean you up, wash you off, redeem, change, new creation, get rid of the old, bring in the new. Over and 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 over. Do we hope we get better? Amen. My experience is we just fell at a different level. Amen. I mean, I'm still, I'm making better mistakes than I used to make. Amen. I still need grace. I still need grace. As God raises my level of understanding and expectation, I still need grace. I fail at a whole new level. <laughs> oh, I didn't used to feel bad about this because I didn't know. But now I feel bad about this too. <laughs> so I need to live in this place where he's pouring in. That allows me to pour out. Finally, number five, it embraces true worship. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another, therefore, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. We knew, we knew when he started this section of the letter with these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We knew when he opened this section of the letter with those words that it was going to get this specific. This is the whole God plan. This is how it all works. This is what real worship is. Real worship is letting Christ love you and then you loving others in the same way. This is what brings praise to God. Let Christ accept you. You accept others. Now, we're going to close this series. But I want to be sure we understand something. The practices are something we do in response to God's grace. I just want to be very clear. This process of God pouring into us and us moving forward, it begins in a moment in which we confess our sins and we receive forgiveness. I, I know it's old-fashioned, <laughs> But the climactic moment of the story of Jesus Christ is a death on a cross that atones for our sins. And the idea is very simple. I come into relationship with Jesus Christ. I become in a reconciled relationship, knowing that the Holy Spirit works on me, does all the initiating. I wouldn't even be in this room were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit and His grace in my life. 
But at some point, he invites me to a place to say, you know what? I want to confess my sin and I want to receive forgiveness. I want to start into this place of reconciliation where you start healing up this stuff and I start moving and I'm practicing the practices to keep this communication, this love relationship going. I'm paying attention to what has initiated in God's grace for me and in God's place for me. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And we're actually going to close this service with an invitation. Now, in the old days, we used to have an altar, and you could come and kneel here, and we would pray with you one at a time until we were all done. Uh, we can't do all of that anymore. So not only am I asking the, our band to come, I'm asking our prayer counselors to move to their places wherever they're going to be. And in a moment, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to say a prayer. And I'm going to invite you. If, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to invite you into my heart. I want to confess my sins. It's pretty, admit we're sinners and we need help. Believe that Jesus Christ saves us. Choose to follow him. Now I'm just going to ask you, you can come and stand. Just stand. It's like the Billy Graham crusade. You know, just come and stand. And we'll say a prayer. And then when the service concludes, you can find one of these prayer counselors. You can find a staff person. You can call us this week. We believe in this stuff. I just want you to know, we believe in this. We believe that all the practices in the world don't lead you to this moment where you get to invite Christ in your heart. That's a different thing. It initiates, that starts, that pushes, that brings us into this place of new creation and new life. So would you stand with me? Let me say a prayer. God, thank you. As much as we sometimes wish we could work it all out, the truth is we need your help. It's not in us to reconcile ourselves and you, through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, have created an invitation. And that invitation that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And that simple process comes when we say, I need you. I recognize sin, dysfunction, brokenness, whatever we call it. And I need help. I want you to wash that away and I want you to reconcile me to God and I want you to put me on the path of reconciling with others. And so in these moments, we invite you to just speak and do your work. We lean on you. We look to you. We ask you to lead us. In a moment, Eric's going to sing. And during this song, we're just going to open the front. You can come. It'll get crowded. And then you can just stand in the aisle. It doesn't matter where you're standing. <laughs> Sometimes it really does matter in a room like this, in a time like this, that you do step out and take some initiative. And that you just say out loud to God, I need you. So as we sing, I just want to invite you to come and stand here at the front so I can pray over you. Let's sing together. Savior, I come and quiet my soul. Remember Redemption's here Where your blood was spilled For my ransom And everything I once held dear I count it all so lead me to the cross where your love poured out 
And bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Oh, lead me. Oh, lead me to the cross. Thank you. Thank you for the courage to step out. Please, can I have the privilege of just praying over you? God, thank you for these that have stepped into this space and said, God, I just want to initiate. I want something new. I need help. I want the old to be gone and the new to come. And I'm praying right now in these moments as you hear the confession of our sins, not just these that have stepped forward, but all across this room, through the live stream, we just say to you, we need you, we need you, we need you, we need you. And while we are committed to engage in the practices, we recognize that they're just a part of the procedure. The goal is relationship with you. And you initiate that in us. And so we just admit our need of you. We admit our failures. We admit our sin. And we believe that you love us and cleanse us and wash us of all unrighteousness. And we choose to follow you. We choose to follow your word. We choose to follow your guidelines. We choose to love you with all of our heart as you enable that. And we choose to love our neighbor as ourselves. So I pray your blessing over every person that stepped out. I ask that you would bless them and touch them. I pray that they would sense your presence. I pray that in the coming hours as Satan sends that message that this was silly and it didn't matter. The reason we stand here is because it does matter. The reason we stand here is because it did happen. It didn't just happen in our heads. We physically stepped out. We physically made a claim. We physically identified ourselves as in need. And I pray that you would not allow the enemy to steal that from them. So guide us and lead us. And I pray that as a congregation, we would be those people passionately committed to love you, to allow you to love us, and to be responsible for generative care for those coming behind us, but all of those around us. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Now, before we leave, I just want to say this to all of you that stepped out here. Please, find a prayer partner. Call me. Send me an email. Let's talk. Let's do something that is the next step because it matters and you matter. God bless you. I love you all. Let's do God's work. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.